Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Roman Basie, a CPA attorney who specializes in working with privately held businesses on deal structure and tax planning. Roman shares with us several transactions that have unique aspects to them that highlight some of the issues that any entrepreneur needs to be aware of as they think about getting their business ready for an exit. The first transaction that Roman shares with us demonstrates why working capital requirements can often be strategically used by buyers because they are specifically designed to effectively reduce the sales price of a business. Unaware entrepreneurs that are selling their business can be surprised when they end up with a lot less than they anticipated because they allowed the working capital to be manipulated either by how working capital was defined or the amount that was going to be required to stay in the business when the business is sold. In another transaction, Roman shares how a business went from $50 million in sales to ceasing operations, and yet it was still sold for a considerable amount of money. Many entrepreneurs would have simply walked away from the business after they closed it. But Roman shares how, if you understand where the intrinsic value of a business really lies, the business can still be monetized even in a non-operating entity. Roman introduces our listeners to a tool that every entrepreneur and their advisors should use as they evaluate their offers to gain insights on what the net after-tax proceeds are going to be when the sale closes. Listen for insights on what this tool is, why it's important, and how it may increase leverage in deal negotiations. Finally, Roman talks about how to use multi-state tax arbitrage to reduce taxation on the sale of a business, especially if you can do some advanced tax planning. This is especially important if you live and operate your business in a high taxation state. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have Roman Basie with us. Roman, would you take a few minutes and talk a little bit about your company and a little bit about where you're located and what your specialty is here? Sure. Well, Marvin, as, as some of you may know, my name is Roman Basie. I am an attorney, a CPA, a real estate broker, as well as a title insurance agent. My firm name is called the Center for Financial Legal and tax planning. The firm is made up of attorneys and CPAs and our specialty is mergers and acquisitions of privately held companies all across the United States. And it's funny when we say privately held companies, we consider them small privately held companies and a small company in the United States is one that has 50 million or less in assets according to the definition by the IRS. So that is typically what our our company does and who we represent. We specialize in the areas of valuation, tax minimization, tax planning, business succession, mergers and acquisitions. Again, with a little bit of my real estate background, 
We do some real estate and estate planning as well. Our corporate office is located in Illinois. And you'll see in my bio, if anyone takes a look at our website, which is taxplanning.com or my bio, that I'm licensed as an attorney in Illinois, Arizona, Florida, Missouri. However, we do work with merger and acquisition across the country in all 50 states. Because of the federal nature and the federal tax nature of buying and selling businesses. Uh, but we do also have an office in Florida, and I split my time personally between our Illinois office and our Florida office. But today we're taping here from Illinois, and that's where the majority of our corporate staff is as well. I've been practicing now alongside my father for 24 years. My father started our company back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And to this day, that is uh, what we do, as what we'll discuss today. Well, this should be an interesting discussion. We talk a lot here on the podcast, Business Exit Stories, about the different dynamics that go into exiting a business and some of the transactional advisors that are involved. And we have had advisors on the tax side occasionally. And uh, this so this will be a really interesting discussion as we kind of get down and lift up the hood on some of these transactions because taxes now and in the past and certainly in the future are going to have a huge impact on what their entrepreneur is actually going to put in his pocket when he walks away from the closing table after exiting his business. So why don't we just get and jump in here today a little bit and talk about some of those specific transactions that you've been involved in that I think our audience that are listening in today might find interesting because it may impact how they view their positioning, their business for sale. So why don't you talk a little bit about a transaction that has its challenges? I think as I've chatted with you in the past here that most of your business transactions make it to closing. But talk about one that had its challenges getting closed. Sure. And as we said, yes, most of our transactions make it to closing. I think about 99 99- 0.9% of them do. It's very, very rare when they don't. One of the more recent transactions that had some difficulty, and particularly these transactions were in the insurance brokerage industry. And there's there's sort of a couple of them that are lumped together. But one of them importantly stuck out to me. The difficulty became in the very early stages of the transaction. The client had signed a contract to sell their business. And there was a purchase price on the contract, as there typically is, although sometimes there's not. And there was a lot of other fine print in the initial offer to sell the business. And those initial offers are usually called letters of intent or indications of interest. Or yes, they can just be written on a napkin sometimes. But overall, it's called a letter of intent. And it's just an intention of how they want to sell their business. Well, very early on, they realized that what they had signed initially was not necessarily what they had initially thought they were signing as far as the purchase price of their business. There was a paragraph in the original document that talked about their working capital and their working capital requirement that they were supposed to leave on the table at closing. And this is becoming more commonplace. I find that interesting when you say it's becoming more common. Traditionally, a letter of intent, a lot of times, don't even reference a working capital requirements. Once you put that in a working capital requirement, is that something that is obligated by the letter of intent to be included in the final documents? For the most part, that answer is yes. You know, we, and you're right, we did not see working capital requirements in letters of intent as recently as 
five years ago and back 10 years ago and 15 years ago, they were non-existent. And now we are starting to see in almost every transaction, working capital language in the letters of intent, working capital requirements or how they're going to define it. The definition of general working capital is current assets minus current liabilities is your working capital. And what is that? And what is that average working capital that you operate your business with? And we are seeing more and more, almost in all of them now, as we sit here in 2021, we're seeing that the buyer's offers are coming in with working capital language in the letter of intent. We are now also seeing letters of intent that point out which paragraphs are binding and which paragraphs are not binding. And of course, those used to be just the confidentiality of it used to be binding and maybe a legal clause in there used to be binding on venue. But now they're using more and more of that. And it's not become a question of whether or not that specific provision is binding or not. Our clients have felt like, Roman, I agreed to it. I didn't know what I was agreeing to. I don't want to not agree to that provision now just because it's non-binding really in the document. That's kind of been their reaction. They're like, uh-oh, what do I do now? I didn't know that's what I was signing. I didn't understand that paragraph. I thought I was selling my business for a couple million dollars. And all of a sudden, I have a six-figure working capital deficiency because of what I agreed to in the letter of intent. So let me just clarify for our audience here that the working capital requirement actually reduces what you take and put in your pocket. As you indicated, you may have a $2 million purchase price, but a $600,000 working capital requirement doesn't mean you're going to walk away with $2 million, does it? It doesn't. Most of these working capitals definitions will just be a target of what you, the owner, should leave at the table on closing. What working capital do you normally operate with? And that's what we want you to leave at the table at closing. And if you normally have a $600,000 working capital, and all of a sudden on the closing day, it's dropped to 400,000, now your $2 million purchase price just became 1.8 million. You've just lost that deficiency at the closing table. And this is what has been happening in a couple of transactions that we've seen recently because of the language that was included early on in the letter of intent. Specifically, one of them said, this particular transaction said, we want your working capital that you have as of this particular date, this particular month. And after the client signed the letter of intent, they realized that that was a very high month for their working capital. Their assets were at a high point compared to their liabilities. And they were in a very good working capital position. And when they looked at what day they were going to have at closing, a couple of months down the road, they realized that that differential was going to be significant. It was going to be in the six figure range. They were going to be $100,000 or more below that target working capital that the buyer set. It was really the first time in my career. This, this happened within the last couple of months. And it was really the first time in my career that I had ever seen a buyer put a specific date on the working capital target and have such a large impact on 
the closing amount they were going to receive from the first draft. So do you think this buyer was really sophisticated and had analyzed the financial statements and watched that working capital fluctuation and picked that specific date because he knew that working capital was high at that point in time, so he targeted that date? Or was this just by chance? What would you assume happened in this situation? In that particular case, it was a sophisticated enough buyer that they knew what they were doing. They were buying these types of companies on a regular basis, which is what happens in our markets. Our markets see these certain groups of buyers. Maybe it's an equity group. Maybe it's a private buyer. They go out and they start buying up companies and they learn more and more on each transaction. So they approached this one before advisors were involved, before there was there was broker and consultants involved. But before maybe the, the lawyer advisor was involved, like myself, that said to them, hey, this is outside of the normal language. Why did the buyer do this? Why was it agreed upon? Did you understand the ramification of that paragraph? And is it binding? Can we change it? Or how do you, the client, now feel about changing that? Because it has a significant impact on your closing proceeds. So really, the takeaway from this for our audience here, as they are thinking about selling their business, the couple of things that I'm getting from your discussion here is that in today's world, there are more and more sophisticated buyers out there that acquire companies on a routine basis. They know how impactful working capital can be. And they actually use that to their benefit. And if a buyer or his advisors aren't really paying attention and have their eye on the ball, they can lose quite a bit of money at the closing table. As you say, in this specific situation, they picked a specific date where the working capital was high and they required that amount of working capital, even though that was probably higher than what was normally there. And it had a six-figure impact on what the founder or the entrepreneur is going to walk away from the table with. And that is a big deal. So I guess the takeaway here is, is that being aware of the working capital requirements and what those definitions of working capital are and what the norm of the industry is, sellers have to be aware of that today because certainly what you're telling me and our audience here is that buyers certainly are. Absolutely. Exactly. In a nutshell, there are more buyers out there. There are sophisticated buyers out there. Companies have money right now, more than we've ever seen. The market's the busiest we've ever seen. They're becoming more educated day by day. And when they know they can make an offer like that now, and they can put that provision into the offer, and maybe maybe it will be negotiated, and maybe it will not be negotiated. They're giving themselves that advantage, and they know that advantage that they're taking. It's just, it's becoming more normal than what we've seen in the past. And it's, you know, you ask about these highlight issues in mergers and acquisitions these days. It's the first one that comes up. It's the first one that I teach some of our younger attorneys about when they're looking at a letter of intent. It's not just about the purchase price. Now it's about what adjustments are in that letter of intent that are going to impact that purchase price before we get to the closing date. Appreciate you pointing that out. And especially I know from experience and talking to entrepreneurs and advisors is that that is one of the things that traditionally isn't really focused on. People understand what working capital is, but not really how the impactful that working capital requirement can be 
with the money that you actually walk away from the table. So that is a key insight here that anyone listening to this podcast has a business who's going to be selling. Just catalog that away into your memory here as you position your company for sale. Make sure that you understand in a letter of intent, especially in the final negotiations, how working capital is going to be impacted. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Roman. So let's move on to another transaction here that you found specifically somewhat challenging and to get to the closing table and to close the business. And one of our most difficult transactions take place uh, approximately two to four years ago. And in my entire 24 career, 24 year career, it was by far the most difficult one to get to the closing table and, and almost did not get there. Again, 99% of our transactions do, but this one did not. And it really started with the family dynamics of, there was many factors at play, but the family dynamics had a major impact on the company transaction. The valuation of the business had major implications for the transaction. What was the value of the company? How was the value built over the years? Where was the value at now? Where was the value at the closing table? And then the tax issues that the company had going into the market to sell their business were massively complex that these prevented such hurdles to get over, to get to the finish line. It it almost became impossible. What type of business were we talking about here? This particular business was in the automotive manufacturing, uh, aftermarket automotive manufacturing in the United States. And that's an industry that's had its challenge, has massive challenges and has had massive challenges over the years. But this company had survived the test of time for the most part until it got into the transaction phase. It came time to sell the business. What was the driving force on the sale of the business? There had been a significant, well, there had been a death in the family. So the the family that had started the business, the father had passed away. And that started the trickle-down process of what's happening to the company. It was at its peak prior to the father passing away. As soon as the father passed away, you start to see the company start to take this downhill slide. So since this was a family business, I assume that the children were running the business or the spouse or other members of the family? Yes, there was a spouse that was then running the business, attempting to run the business. And she was up in age at that time trying to run the business. There were three children that to the family that were then trying to assist in running the business as well. And, you know, just even stepping back from that to say the proper planning and succession planning clearly was not in place. At the time the father passed, there were no plans in place as to now what was going to happen with the company, who was going to run this business, and how the business was going to be ran. And the business was ran for a couple more years. And they started to see a decline in their sales. They were around the 50 million or plus a year in sales revenue a year. And they started to decline very in the process of that declination. 
they there was a buyer that came forward a couple of years later to purchase the business. And one of our struggles was we were brought in initially to value the business, help value the company. Very complex manufacturing valuation of a business that had to take place. And we were brought in to value the company. And now we're valuing a company that's had its sales drop from over 50 million a year down to 10 million a year and still drop. Holy smokes, that's an 80% drop in revenue. That's huge delta in valuation. How do you value a company like that that is in a tailspin, basically? That's part of the success we had to get them to the closing table was the valuation of the company had to account for the different level of revenue. And again, as a CPA and as an attorney, you know, we value companies based on standards set under the Internal Revenue Code. I don't always look at evaluation and just say, well, it's EBITDA times a multiple. So we value the company using four methods. And those four methods became crucial here because we had a company that was declining in value, but still having operations and still valuable. Why? They're an American manufacturing company. So still a very valuable operation within the United States. So we value them and we look at four things when we're valuing them. We look at what are their normal earnings? What should this company normally be making? It's not really an even evaluation, but it's saying, what are their normal earnings? And we look at that methodology. We then look at the method of saying, okay, this is a big manufacturing facility. What's their equipment worth? What's their machinery worth? Can I calculate some blue sky or some goodwill to this business? And they had it. They had quite a bit of blue sky and goodwill in the business because their name was still valid across the country. Their operation was still valid across the country, even though they were declining. You look at their cash flow. You know, when we're looking at evaluation, we're also looking at their cash flow. What is the cash flow of the business? This was an old corporation. There were not tremendous third-party liabilities. But what's the cash flow of the business? And how can we attribute value to that? And then finally, we do look at comparables in the industry. And we look at EBITDA as one comparable, but we also look at net sales as another comparable. And we merge those two comparables to come up with our values. So we were able to show the buyer, the first buyer that came around. There ended up being a second buyer that we ended up being successful with after many, many months and uh, over a year. But we were able to show the first buyer, we have value at 50 million, of course we do. Even though they're down to the $10 million in sales range now, there's still value here. So I'm just curious, at the $10 million sales range, given that they had $50 million at one point in time, were they still profitable? Were they able to sustain operations because of a fixed overhead type of situation that was involved? Yes, they were able to sustain operations, even at the lower revenue level. They were not in a situation where the operations had to cease because of losses that they were incurring. This particular plant, could shut down certain divisions. Sure, were they laying off certain certain portions of employees when they would shut down a particular section of the plant? Yes. Were they not fulfilling as many orders because of their reduction in size and capacity? Yes. Were they still able to operate? Absolutely. Were they still able to make a profit? Most likely, that became another challenge, as you'll hear, because they didn't file tax returns. However, they were still operational and able to stay in operations throughout the first buyer process. And that took us about a year. That took us about a year to show, we used the valuation. 
We used our valuation as our negotiating tool with the buyer to keep everyone at the table. While we were dealing with all kinds of other issues, we kept that transaction close to closing and keeping on going. And then at some point, the dysfunction amongst the family members was so bad. In the summer of the year of the negotiation with the buyer, they shut down their operation. Completely shut it down. Completely shut down the operation. Yet, we were still successful selling the business at the valuation number eight months later, at the valuation number of when they were producing $10 million in revenue. I'm just really intrigued with that. So we have a business that's gone from 50 to 10 to closing down. And you were able to keep buyers at the table. And was that specifically driven by the quality of the valuations and the supporting documentation behind that valuation that kept those buyers at the table? They still saw value at the valuation as when they were still operating? I believe so. I believe that it was the the quality of the valuation and the information that was supporting the valuation that continue to keep the buyer at the table. Now the buyer morphed in the buyer was two entities together initially. After the shutdown, the buyer was still one half of those same entities. They had to get another financing partner involved, but it maintained its valuation through the shutdown because of the supporting information, because of the operation itself because of the valuation to the goodwill that was done. And when I say the valuation to the goodwill, that's exactly what I mean. Our our valuation calculated the goodwill that was attributable to this company and this company name and its location and its network throughout the country. So it had these features in place that, now had it gone longer, had it gone a couple of years, sure. Would it have been unsuccessful? Most likely. But because we were able to keep part of the buyer at the table throughout the shutdown, we were still successful in closing the transaction down the road. And and during the eight-month shutdown, we removed one of the family members from positions of importance, from a directorship, from an officership, still still maintained as a shareholder, but removed the complexity of the dysfunction and the and the miscommunication of the family. And once we were able to clean that part up for them, we were able to sell the business. And that's not something that I get involved with or do on a typical basis. And we, we tell our clients and our, our, our brokers and our advisors that if the, if the company needs family advising, which so many family-owned companies do, in order to have better synergy amongst the family. And in order to maximize the efficiency of the operation, it's what advisors are for. It's what brokers are for. That's what consultants are for. They help us get there. They help us get to that closing table sometimes. And that became a very, very important piece to this transaction. One other real complexity here was we're dealing with a shutdown. We're dealing with family dysfunction. And then honestly, we're dealing with a company that hadn't filed tax returns in about five years trying to sell a business that has not filed tax returns for its operations in five years. 
Yeah, I'm really intrigued with this whole process in this particular case, this transaction sort of highlights. But the thing that really jumps off of the page when I look at what you're telling me here is that you have a struggling business that's declining in sales, but there is intrinsic value there. And just because your business is struggling doesn't mean that there's value there. A lot of times I've seen people just get discouraged and fold the tent and walk away. And what you're telling me is that that is perhaps the wrong thing to do if you have the right type of advisors around you that substantiate that intrinsic value that spent decades or a founder has spent decades building. You can monetize that. You can capitalize on that intrinsic value and sell a business that is struggling. If you have the right type of valuation to support what the business components are that still have value. Certainly the cash flow is less value because it's going down, but there are other things as you were outlining, the network, the reputation, the goodwill. So would you say that the real takeaway from this story is that a struggling business, if handled properly, still has value and can be sold? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's so many factors that go into evaluation, that go into what a buyer is wanting out of a company, that you can't just write off the struggling business. There's so much value that can be attributed to them sometimes that even during times of struggle, there's still value there to be sold, to be gained. There's a lot of intrinsic value there. Well, Roman, well, let's jump over to a transaction that you've been involved in. Focuses around your core competency here. I mean, you do a lot of different things, but one of your core competencies in the firm, since you have a website called taxplanning.com, is in the tax area. So why don't we talk a little bit about taxes and how important taxes can be? Do you have a transaction you could share with us that kind of highlights that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite transactions, actually, of, of all time. I, I had a client I represented for many years. Uh, one of my very, very first clients, actually. Even before I was licensed as an attorney, I was working with, with him when he was working with our firm. Buying a company every year for about 20 years. He was in the janitorial supply industry, selling toilet paper, paper towels, chemicals to schools and governments and, and you name it. And so over the years, buying companies for this company left and right and planning for taxes and structuring the deals to benefit his company the most. I get a call from him in the summer. This was about two years ago or three years ago. I get a call from him in the summer and he had a health scare. He said, as I thought he was calling me to buy another company. And I said, oh, Robert, we're going to buy another company. He goes, no. Because the time has come to sell, Roman, and I've already been approached by somebody. And here's the offer they've made me. And on every transaction now, for the most part, we start the exact same way. We look at what the offer is or what the value of the business is. Maybe we value it. Maybe you value it. Maybe another company has given someone a business valuation. We look at the value of what we believe is there. And we produce what we call our tax minimization analysis. And we are showing the owner prior to closing, prior to getting into the meat of the transaction, what their after deal, after tax cash 
looks like. We're not just giving the client a tax percentage and saying, Roman, this just happened yesterday, by the way, this, this one. Roman, I'm selling a seven and a half million dollar company and my CPA is telling me I'm gonna pay 40% in tax. And so what are you thinking in your mind? Oh my gosh, what is 40%, seven and a half million? I'm gonna walk away with nothing. It's not what we do. And that's not what made this transaction with the janitorial supply company successful. We break down the cash flow of the transaction to the penny to show you and show the owners of the businesses what they're going to walk away with at the closing. And let's take this $10 million deal, for example. This was a $10 million sale of a janitorial company. The first thing that popped out was he's not receiving $500,000 at closing. $500,000 is being held back. Now, that $500,000 is a holdback or contingency or what? It's a holdback. And a 5% holdback on a transaction, that's, that can be considered normal on a transaction of that size. Sometimes they can be higher than that. It could be 10%, 12%, 20%. We've seen them higher. So to hold back 5%. What did that tell me? He was holding back 5% of the transaction. The buyer was putting it in escrow somewhere, not being attributed to the sale yet. That's not taxable in the year of the sale. So to tell a client that you're going to pay 40% or whatever it may be, this client happened to be in the state of California where taxes are 13% in the, uh, from, the, from the first level, not alone the federal level. So he was looking at potentially 50% in tax is what his accountant was telling him. And to tell him that he was going to pay 50% in tax on a half a million dollars that he wasn't even receiving at the sale was incorrect. Showing it on our tax analysis form, we pull that out of the transaction, show it in a different column. I think he was going to receive it in 18 months. What projected tax bracket is my client going to be in in 18 months? Apply that tax bracket to that payment. Not 50%. He's not even going to be making money in the year that he receives $500,000 on the escrow. So that changed it. What expenses of the sale? are you paying at closing that are not taxable? Broker and advisor commissions, legal and accounting fees, other bills that have not been paid or not been expensed on the books of the company that are not going to be taxed at closing. And they can be expensed at closing. So that reduces the tax liability. Now, we also start to show you what is your tax basis? This was an asset sale. What is your tax basis in those assets? What basis can we use to reduce the liability more? He had inventory. He had machinery and equipment. He was on the accrual method of accounting. He had accounts receivable that had already been taxed. So here he had two, three million of accounts receivable. You're not paying tax on that. You've already reported those sales on the accrual method. We're showing him every step of the way where that accounting advice had been just too much over the top, wrong, and too much over the top. Showing them the after-tax flow, after-tax, after-deal cash flow to him that he really received. What made this successful? Him knowing, I got a, I had a $10 million offer, I'm going to get X million from the sale of the company. And we just kept changing it as the deal kept getting negotiated and negotiated. This one had wrinkles. He had converted from C-Corp to S-Corp in the year of sale. 
We still wanted them to be treated as a C corp. So we wanted to use a tax concept known as personal goodwill. So we continued to modify this tax analysis as the deal went to the closing table. Eventually we closed it. We took, this one took a little while. It was a pretty, very, fairly large company. It took us a couple months to get it closed. And even after the transaction, he called us in the next year when we were preparing his final tax return. He, he was still like, "Why, Roman, why am I paying taxes? Why am I paying so much in tax? But the smoothness of telling him, hey, remember the tax analysis we did? We called it our tax minimization analysis. We worked on it from day one all the way to the closing day. I said, look, go back and look at that. We're almost spot on with what we think you're going to pay in taxes. And it just made his transaction so smooth and so successful for him. It wasn't a surprise. And we were able to negotiate. In fact, in this particular deal, because of the tax impact, the way that the buyer wanted the structure, and this is a true story, no joke, the offer was sitting at $9 million. <clears throat> Because of the tax structure that we wanted to use, and the buyer did not want to use it, the buyer gave him an extra million dollars. And we tacked it on the closing table. And it got, yes, my client had to pay a little more in tax because we wanted to use the buyer's tax structure. The buyer gave my client a million dollars. The tax analysis alone got him an extra $1 million of closing. So it became very important for the transaction. Now we, we love that piece. We start every part of every transaction with that tax minimization analysis piece because it's so important. Can a client's accountant or bookkeeper do it? Yes. Do they understand it all? Maybe they understand the transaction. We also take into account their personal tax situation and how that may be impacting that analysis. We also take into account what do they want to do after the transaction? Where do they want to invest the money? Right before this call today, Marvin, I just took a call with a client. We just sold their business. I think it was one of the clients you and I were talking about previously where there's some city familiarity there. And she called us now wanting to know, okay, you sold the company. I know what you told me. I got to pay a tax. Now I'm ready to go to the after-tax investments. And we showed her that initially on the tax minimization analysis. So it was the deal. It was the personal elements involved in it as well that could help. And then it was after the deal. What does she want to do with the gain? What investments are out there that we can eliminate some of the tax on the gain? So this product, and I, I, I'm not trying to talk about this today as a selling position, it's an educational piece that if a client is not going to a negotiation table knowing what their tax picture looks like, not just a percentage, they're missing out on value because what we can do with this tax piece is so important. We create value with it. And that's the takeaway from that transaction. Well, I guess what you're really saying here is that information is power. And if you have the information and using this tool that you've described to us here today as this kind of tax minimization tool, that gives you a lot of insight and you can deal structure around this information using the buyer's tax structure and generating additional value from that. 
basically is that if you understand your tax position, you have a, a lot more information and power and that you're likely to walk away from the table with a lot more money in your pocket than going into this with some general idea of what you're going to be paying in taxes. And you'll probably end up paying a lot more and putting a lot less in your pocket. So let's kind of wrap it up with one more transaction that you've been involved in that perhaps deals with some state taxes. I'm based here in California. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier here in California, so one of the highest tax states in the country. So do you have a transaction that talks about arbitrage between states and taxes and things of that nature that you've been involved in where you've been able to leverage that type of information and structure between states? I, I think it's one of the more important things to talk about these days from a transactional standpoint is the state tax impacts to the transactions. And we incorporate, just to, just to start with that conversation, we incorporate the state taxes into our tax analysis. We incorporate sales taxes into our analysis. We incorporate like the state of Florida taxes promissory notes. So if you have a promissory note as part of your transaction, you can have a state tax there. Now in particular, we have had several transactions recently close in states with high income tax brackets where the selling entities planned for it a couple of years in advance, sometimes many years in advance. One transaction in particular stands out to me recently. It's a California transaction. We had a client in California that I started working with about six or seven years ago, actually. I gave a speech. They're in the pet retail and service industry. And I gave a speech at a convention in Seattle to a live audience. And it was about valuation and tax analysis. And this gentleman owned his business for many years and was in the process of wanting to transfer the business to his daughter. And his daughter was running, was helping him run the company. And this gentleman was in the middle of moving from California to Arizona. So getting out of a very detrimental income tax state and moving to another state and thinking about transferring the business to his daughter. Now, we ended up transferring the business to his daughter years prior under a stock transaction. Stock transactions reported to the individual. So he was able to report his stock sale and his gain to the state of Arizona as opposed to the state of California. Not knowing when she took the company over several years ago that uh, lo and behold, this year in 2021, she was going to get an incredible offer to buy the company from a buying person in the industry. This was not a company that was marketed, listed, or broken. Now, she had listened to us as well. Years prior, she had moved her residency from California to Nevada. And so a lot of Californians are either going to Nevada or Arizona. I'm in my Illinois office today. A lot of Illinoisans are heading to Florida and Texas to avoid the income tax in those states. What became very interesting here was California to Nevada situation. And her company was West Coast related, West Coast state related. So when we got the offer to sell the company, the company does have operations in California and the company is a California corporation. So the state tax creation and the issue started to become a real factor 
in this offer that was coming in for her business. Again, remember, her offer was sort of out of the blue. We didn't expect this to happen. But she knew there was a possibility when she took over the company. And one reason why she had made residency in the back. So when it happened, we were able to allocate for tax purposes portions of the deal that applied to California and were going to be impacted by the California state tax at the highest rate, potentially of 13%, depending upon the income reported that year, and also allocate to her in Nevada and to the goodwill that she has as an individual in Nevada, avoiding potentially the state income tax in California. So there are the, the moral to her story, and it became a very successful transaction. She received excess funds within the transaction that we could attribute to her as an individual in the state of Nevada and not pay the California tax rate on those portions of the transaction. And it became the successful feature of the deal. She was getting X amount of dollars more than the value of the business and she was going to be able to retain those because of the tax structuring that took place. Can we do it every time? No. Are there certain times when we can do it? Yes. There are certain valuations that we will do. There are certain methods we will follow in these transactions when we're dealing with two different states and one of them has better taxation than the other because we want to be able to defend it. We want to be able to say, if there's a question that comes up, from a state, why did you do this? We want to be able to be here also for the defense and say, this is what we believe. This is the structure that we created. And yes, this is the tax savings that we passed on to our client. And it became the successful feature of her transaction. In fact, she's the one I just had a call with today that we just talked about now. What are we going to do with the proceeds? And where can we invest them to get preferential treatment again? And with this new tax law looming, these issues are more important than ever. Well, I think what's really intriguing about the transaction you just shared with us today is the whole concept of forecasting and thinking about the future. We have a, a founder here that started a company. He said he was in a pet business. And I know that during COVID that those businesses exploded with people being home and buying pets and taking care of their pets a lot more than they have in the past. That was a, a very robust business. But even before then, to have a founder that moved out of state was looking to the future, had some succession planning in place, thought a little bit about taxation in advance. He moved to Arizona. She moved to Nevada, primarily driven by tax considerations. And that because of those dynamics, you were able to really create a situation here to allocate the sale of the business to different states. And because there is no income tax in, in Nevada, where there's a 13.3% state tax here in California. That's a big deal when you start talking big numbers. That's a huge deal. And so this whole concept of just not ignoring taxes and taking the attitude that you're just going to pay them and you should be grateful that you pay them, 
There is some logic in that, but nevertheless, since there are opportunities to structure transactions, to be able to leverage different tax rates in different states and allocation in the transaction we talked a little bit about here before, allocation of the purchase price and recognition of the sale proceeds over a period of years, all of those things have a dramatic impact of what you put in. That can be life-changing, actually. Those monies can just disappear in the tax payments, can have a big impact on your lifestyle after you sell a business. So, Roman, this has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate you sharing these transactions with us here today and give us some insight into the value of having a tax expert like yourself that has both the legal side of taxes as well as the accounting side of taxes and filing the necessary tax returns and everything and deal structuring. If someone wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you and chat a little bit more about their specific situation, what would be the best way for them to do that? The best way, one way, you know, they can always look at our website, which is www.taxplanning.com. Why don't you give us a little story about how you got taxplanning.com? I give this story a lot. In fact, I was just speaking about it over the weekend to a group of friends that I was uh, lucky enough to spend the week with. But the, the web domain is attributed to my older brother. So again, and I, I work in a family business and I always have my mother, my father, and myself. And now my two daughters have become a little part of our business as well. But my brother back in the 1990s, when the internet was just becoming available, my oldest brother, and I'm one of six siblings, six children, but he was astute enough and savvy enough with computers to understand the importance of domain names from the very beginning. This domain was registered with Network Solutions, which is one of the first primary... Very first, yes. Yeah, the very first. The very first. And that's, it's, to, it, it's there to this day. And somehow, someway, back in the 1990s, or I think it was the early 90s, when the internet was first coming around, he got the name secured for my father and this company. And to this day, we still have the domain taxplanning.com. And I've always told him, I said, if I ever, if that's my safety net, if I ever have to sell the domain name to have some revenue for our company, which thank God we've never had to even thought of think about that. But if we ever did, I owe him some money. There's no doubt about that. Well, there's absolutely true. So people can reach out to you on taxplanning.com. So again, Roman, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to share a little bit about your business and the importance of tax planning and structuring deals as people and our founders out there and entrepreneurs that own businesses get ready to position their companies for an eventual exit. So this is Marvin L. Storm with another episode from Business Exit Stories. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.